Thank you, Drew, for that unnecessary introduction. <laughs> uh, it really is a, a privilege and an honor for me to be able to, to speak to you all this morning and um, to have that opportunity, and uh, not something I take lightly uh, in, uh, in the least. Um, before I start, I want to just draw your attention to one thing that is happening this week. Um, Youth Praha is beginning a monthly event called The Drop, and it's a youth and student event, and so particularly if you're here and you're a teenager or you're at university, this this event is really um, put on for you as a social event. We're going to have music, we're going to have artists performing, there's going to be food for sale, uh, and um, it's just an opportunity to come, invite friends, meet people, hang out, uh, and enjoy the arts. And there's a, a small cover charge to come in, but that covers uh, a, uh, a drink and a snack and a, a ticket for a prize draw. So it's going to be a monthly thing, the last Friday of every month, and uh, we're going to be inviting different artists from around the city every, every time. So hope to see as many of you as can come uh, at that, and it starts this Friday. So we're carrying on today with our series called B, and last week Drew spoke on the topic of belonging and the incredible truth of what it means to belong to God as adopted children through Jesus. That God looked at us in our loneliness and reached out to bring us into his perfect love. And that through Jesus, we can not only call God our creator and king, but we can call him our dad. And along with Jesus, because we're children of God, it means that God gives us an eternal inheritance. We become co-heirs with Jesus, and he gives us a love in him that can never be taken away. That is a completely life-changing truth. If you're a Christian, it means you belong to God. You're a new creation. You have eternal life. God is your father, and the creator of the universe is for you and is calling you his beloved child. Now, we're carrying on with this topic of belonging today, and in preparing, I I remembered a, a time when I went on an outing with my A-level religious studies class uh, back in high school in the UK. And um, I was the only Christian in the class. And I remember one of my classmates asking me, you know, Christianity makes sense to me. I I can see why God needs, uh, sorry, man needs God. and, And I can see the benefit of having a relationship with God. But what I don't get is why the church needs to exist. If I have a relationship with God, why do I need the church? And, you know, my 18-year-old self, it it really got me thinking. I didn't have a good answer for him at the time. Um, But we so often talk of the Christian faith as 
our sins being forgiven and being made, made right with God just as if I had never sinned and uh, having a personal relationship with God through Jesus and uh, becoming a Christian is making God your personal Lord and Savior. And uh, where does the church fit in to that picture? It is a good question. You know, maybe you're... Uh, reserved or introverted or maybe culturally uh, you were taught to keep personal things to yourself and spiritual things are intensely personal. And so what's wrong with just keeping to yourself? If, if being a Christian means having a relationship with God, then, uh, you know, just on a personal level, it's, it might be hard to see how getting anyone else involved is going to make that better, especially the kind of people that hang out in churches. <laughs> um, so if I have God, why do I need the church? Some people would take it further and say, um, if I have God, I definitely don't need the church because don't groups of people getting together into organized religion always tend towards a power game or or. Uh, hypocrisy or just about getting people's money, uh, you know, wouldn't it be better if we could just bypass all of that, all the ugliness of what organized religion can be and just keep it to the personal realm? Now that, that way of thinking, that line of thinking is, is exactly why you'll find millions of people around the world today, uh, including members of my own family, who would consider themselves a spiritual person or a religious person, maybe even would call themselves a Christian, but feel no need to be part of the church or any religious expression. In fact, they might even consider consider themselves truer to their faith for not being part of one. So what, if anything, is wrong with that picture? Well, first of all, the reason I think that many of us ask this question, that many people ask this question, is that they're reading Christian faith by the dominant cultural beliefs of our time. The solitary Christian, the lone ranger Christian, out there on their own with no one else but them and God. It's a modern myth. The modern, especially the Western worldview, is the most individualistic of any worldview in history. The modern person, many uh, Christians included, uh, thinks of themselves primarily as an individual. And so it's, it's expressed in slogans like, I have to do what's right for me. I have to find my way in life. I have the right to my decisions and my own body. Nothing defines me except Me. I shape my own identity, and you need to respect that. And you can tell the the individualistic mindset that we have by the heroes that we tend to praise. Today's heroes tend to be the self-made men and women. The ones that started out with nothing, and by their own genius or the sweat of their own brow, they made it to the top with no one else's help that charted their own course, the ones that sing the Frank Sinatra gospel, I did it my way. (laughs) 
And so the modern mindset thinks of uh, a person primarily as an individual. But historically, and even today in the majority of cultures around the world, a person thinks of themselves primarily as one amongst a community. I have to do right by my family and my tribe. I have to fulfill my role in my community. I have, um, I'm shaped and defined by my community. And I have to be loyal. Quite a different mindset. It's, it's, it's a, a communal mindset. But there's, there's truths on both sides. And there's dangers on both sides. The tribe or the family can become just as much of an idol as the individual can. But especially in the West, if we think about our Christian faith, if we we communicate it purely in individualistic terms, basically between me and God, then it does become hard to see the need to involve any other people. But when you look at the Bible, when you look at the picture of what it means to be in Christ, to be part of the body of Christ, that idea of the solitary Lone Ranger Christian is completely alien to the Bible. So, for a couple reasons. First of all, there's no such thing as a solitary Christian because there's no such thing as a solitary person. And Christians are, in fact, people. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) There's no such thing as an autonomous person. Human beings are designed with an intrinsic need for community. Drew talked about it last week that... um, we, we need other people, not only for our basic survival, uh, but for our, our happiness, our, our, our well-being. No person is an island. We're all deeply interconnected physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We need each other, not only to, to survive, but to be whole, to thrive. Now, you can see this in, in, in Genesis. When God created the earth, after everything that he created, he said it was good. And then he came to create human beings in his own image. In other words, to reflect his own character, which is goodness, the source of goodness. God created human beings to reflect his goodness in a way that nothing else does. That's why it says we're made in the image of God. But after making the first human being, God makes Adam and he sees that he's alone. And this is the first thing that God says, this is not good. In other words, this is something that does not accurately reflect my character, who I am. Because God is community. God is the perfect, eternal, loving relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when God makes Eve, who um, it describes as the, the, the perfectly suited partner for this Adam, now God looks at his creation and says, it is very good. So what it shows us is human beings better reflect the image of God in community, because God is community. The fact that God is community, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this eternal, perfect uh, relationship, 
That is why we can say that God not only is loving, but that God is love. Because love can only exist in relationship. For love to exist, you have to at least have the lover and the, and the thing or the person that is being loved. And so God is love because he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only in community can we reflect that nature of God. When we form community that is selfless, that is loving, that is full of joy and mutual submission, that reflects the nature of God's being, of his character. So that's the the first reason why uh, there's no such thing as a solitary Christian. Um, But the second reason is becoming a Christian means being incorporated into Christ. It means being made part of his body. We spoke um, a, a few weeks ago on the topic of being in Christ, that that's what it means to become a Christian is that um, uh, you are made part of his body through his death, through his resurrection. And your baptism, you are joined with Jesus and you become part of his body. And the church, the Bible describes the church as the body of Christ on earth. The bride of Christ that is made one with him through marriage, and thus made one flesh. So Christ's body is our body, and we are part of him. And so if you're a Christian, you are part of the body of Christ. There is no Christian outside of the body of Christ, because to be a Christian means to be part of the body of Christ. Um, salvation, biblically speaking, it was never intended to be merely an individual experience. It's an invitation into the community of God's children who together are the bride of Christ, the the precious uh, prize that Jesus gave his life for. That's why Romans 8.29, it says that God's plan from from, uh, before the world began, his plan was to shape us into the image of Jesus. And it says, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus came not just to save us personally, but to join us with a family. He wanted to unite us to himself so that he could unite us to one another as well. And so becoming a Christian automatically means joining the church, whether we know it or not. And when I say church, I mean church with a a big C, which is uh, the the body of Christ, the the body of believers all around the world. Sometimes it's called the the universal church, uh, rather than a church with a little c, which is a particular congregation. Um, And as we look more into this this passage that we read, we're going to see a little more of what being part of the church looks like. So, uh, the next point. When you read, especially starting from verse 14 and onwards, through this passage, Paul is using language that 
reminds us of the Old Testament covenant. He's writing to uh, uh, non-Jewish Christians, and he's reminding them and teaching them about the way things used to work under the Old Covenant. Now, in the Old Covenant, access to God was limited for time to a particular nation, a particular ethnicity and tribe, and a particular place, which is the temple. And so, because of these limits, there were insiders and there were outsiders. There were those that were far away and those that were near. There were those that were welcome and those that were unwelcome. And the Gentiles, anyone who wasn't a Jew, was excluded. They were foreign. They were alien. And so if you wanted access to to God under the Old Covenant, there was a massive barrier that you had to overcome. You needed to be part of the Jewish people, which meant circumcision and following the law. You needed to uh, be part of the nation of Israel. You needed to worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, which was his dwelling place. And so that's why Paul refers to this dividing wall of hostility. Because uh, the temple in Jerusalem even had a physical wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the areas that only, if you were Jewish, that, uh, could you go in. So the wall stopped Gentiles from entering into the, the, the inner sanctuary of the temple, and there were signs that, that said, under pain of death. Um, and so there was this system of separation that God put in place because of sin to bring about ultimately his plan. But in the meantime, it created this deep division and even this hostility between Jews and non-Jews. But Paul says in this passage that that hostility, that dividing wall of hostility, has been demolished. It has been radically overturned by the new covenant. And he says that being part of the church is radically different. Why or how? Um, If you were to, I think, if you were to ask your average person today, what does it mean to be part of the church? Uh, They would probably think about it in a similar way to the Old Testament. They would probably, there's a lot of people who think to be part of the church means to be westernized and to follow a certain uh, Western-looking cultural form, and you have to follow a set of rules and wear certain clothes and attend a certain service in a particular holy, uh, musty building. Um, And that's what it means to be part of the church. But that's completely mistaken. Part of the problem, I think, is that in English, at least, and and, uh, other languages, we've subsumed two Greek words into one. Kuriakos and ecclesia. Kuriakos is the word that we get our word, uh, our English word church from, and it meant the Lord's, belonging to the Lord. And that referred to a building uh, where where God was worshipped. So that was a a common Greek word, kuriakos. In the Bible, though, in reference to the church, it never uses the word kuriakos. It uses the word ecclesia. 
which means the called out ones. It always refers to a group of people. So biblically, the church is not a building. The church is a body of people that have been called out by Jesus. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, by living that perfect life and overcoming sin by his death and resurrection, he created a new humanity in himself. A a new humanity that transcends all boundaries of nation, ethnicity, culture, and place. Humanity under Adam was addicted to sin, and like all addiction, it led to the disintegration of self, of uh, relationship with God and with others. But the humanity under Christ has been given a new nature, free from that addiction to sin, and is in the process of being made whole, reintegrated with God, reintegrated in ourselves, reintegrated in unity with all those that are now in that uh, humanity with Christ. And so that's what Paul means when he uses this term peace through this passage. The biblical vision of peace, um, shalom, it meant more than just the absence of, uh, of conflict. It meant wholeness. It meant unity. Uh, you could put it the, the harmonious relationship of all things in the way that they were meant to relate to each other. Paul says Jesus is that peace. That peace is in him. In Jesus, there is complete unity with God, unity within ourselves, unity with others. And he's restoring the unity and harmony of God's creation that was ruined by sin. And so in Jesus, there's no barrier to becoming part of his people. There is no disintegration. There is no uh, disunity. There's no one nation or one ethnicity or one tribe or one culture, no single place where you can have access to God because the church is a people from all nations, all ethnicities, all cultures, all tribes, and it's all over the world. And so that's the picture that you see in Revelation of the New Jerusalem. Christians, so this is a society that Jesus is is shaping and that he's building. And if you're a Christian, you are part of it now. Part of this new humanity. And so in Christ, no matter who you are, where you're from, in Christ, your primary citizenship is in him. Your primary race is in him. Your primary tribe is in him. There used to be a wall, and now Jesus has opened a gate. And so today, if, if uh, Christians find themselves reverting to uh, any kind of tribalistic mentality uh, of exclusion or putting up barriers by having to jump through certain cultural hoops, uh, we're actually betraying this good news of the gospel. 
and this essence of the new humanity that Jesus has made in himself. If you're a Christian, you have become spiritually one with, with Jesus. His actual body, that body that, that, that died on the cross, that was buried, that was resurrected, and it's at the right hand of the Father now. We are one with him. That's why the picture of marriage is such a, a, a great image of that. That's what we're baptized into. And that's why the church is called the body of Christ. And that's why uh, communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever you call it, that is such a, a, a beautiful and powerful thing. Because as we share that together, we are entering in to the lines of generations in the past and generations in the future and generations now that are sharing in that one body represented in the bread. Sharing in that one forgiveness that's represented in the blood. And so communion unites us with all of the the body of Christ through history. And moving to the next point, you know, this, this all may sound extremely mystical and mysterious, and that's because it is. Paul, in fact, calls this the, the mystery of God hidden through the ages. Uh, and so it is mystical, it is mysterious, but even though the church uh, is, is the mystical body of Christ, uh, and that reality of being one with him, it's, it's invisible, it, it is, it's mysterious. Um, the church and the Christian life is never uh, uh, mystical in its presence on earth. It's embodied in actual people. It's lived out in our flesh and blood lives. The church is a concrete reality because the church is the people that God has called out. Um, and so even though every, every Christian is, is a member of that mystical body of Christ that, that is um, mysterious, um, our natural inclination as children of God is to also seek out the physical people that make up that body, the, the local uh, time and space, flesh and blood people that make up that body. Um, in fact, I would go as far as to say you can't be part of the mystical body while rejecting the physical body. First um, John 4.20 says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We can't be part of the the mysterious, mystical body of Christ and yet hate the actual embodied body of Christ. (laughs) Um, The community of the church is essential for us. Not only because we need community just to survive, but we need community to become everything 
that we're meant to be in Christ. It's through community that we grow in godly character. We need each other. We need each other not just for our strengths, but it's funny to think we need each other actually for each other's weaknesses. You know, uh, my parents are involved in a, in a, in a uh, Christian community, planting, helping people with, with drug addictions, and that's where I've grown up. And so I've grown up in community in the sense of, you know, living together in one house and eating together and all that stuff. Um, and I can testify to the fact that community is annoying. <laughs> community uh, is... is um, is, is uh, a pain in the neck. <laughs> in fact, people are a continual thorn in the side of how we would prefer our lives went. <laughs> they're messy. They don't comply. They're burdensome. And this is why we need them. <laughs> because what we see in Jesus is not God just coming to lend a helping hand to his buddies to get us, back us, get us back up on our feet. What we see in Jesus is God reaching out to his enemies, reaching out to people that are dead set against doing his will and his plans, and people that don't just need a helping hand, but people that need resurrection, people that are dead in their sin and weakness. God, in Jesus, was acting selflessly towards the weak, us, when we could offer nothing in return for his unconditional love. So, for us, we don't just need the church for some moral support. We need the church because it's through bearing each other's burdens, bearing each other's weaknesses and each other's sin that we're able to grow in the character of Jesus because we're doing what Jesus did. He gave himself sacrificially to carry our burdensomeness. (laughs) Only a people, only a community of people that continually fails to meet our conditions can teach us how to love unconditionally. We simply cannot do that on our own. But you might say, okay, that's true of community, but can't that happen in any community, any group of people, which, you know, allows you to be selfless and loving and, uh, you know, and it can and should happen to a degree in any community when that's the way that you approach it. So what makes the church unique in being able to shape the character of Jesus in us? Is it because we're, we're, we're particularly burdensome? Uh, the church is unique because the church is built in Christ. And it's unlike any other human society. When you look at verse 17, it says that Jesus preached peace to the Gentiles who were far off 
and to the Jews who were supposedly near, he preached peace to both because in their sinful humanity, neither one was able to fulfill what it, what it took to make peace with God and with each other. The Gentiles, which you could say represents the, the irreligious way of life, couldn't do it. But nor could the Jews, which represented the, the, the religious way of life. Only the gospel of Jesus, in Jesus, could make that peace. So the, the irreligious were excluded as foreigners from the start, um, but the religious way of life ended up putting up this dividing wall that created such hostility and division. A dividing wall that not even the religious themselves could climb. But what we see in the church that's built on this new message, this, this incredibly good news of Jesus, what we see is membership in this new kingdom is not based on being from the right nation or the right ethnicity or the right culture. Uh, it's not based even on your own piety, as the religious way of life would tell you, but it's based on Jesus and his merit. It's based on being in him. In ourselves, we can't be part of God's kingdom because we're foreigners. We weren't born into the kingdom. We're foreign. And so Paul says it's only in Jesus that we're made citizens of God's kingdom. Citizens with a, 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 a standing in his kingdom. We have access to God the king. But he goes further and he says, uh, in ourselves, we can't, you know, even if you were born into the kingdom and you're a citizen like the Jews were, you can't do what is necessary to earn a place in God's family, in God's household, to be part of God's inner circle. Paul says only through Jesus can we be made members of God's household because through Jesus we're married into the family, we're adopted as children of God and we have access not only to the king but to dad. And so the only way to get there is through the body of Christ. And so the church is essential to us. And the last point here is that the church is not only essential to us, the church is essential to the world. Now, that, that may seem like a completely naive and self-important statement. And to many people across the world, the church certainly doesn't look essential. It doesn't look uh, 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 indispensable. Um, and the church certainly does a lot of good around the world that is unsung. Uh, and through history, you can point to the ways that the church has brought about many of the most valued things in our modern society. Uh, you can point to human rights. You can point to social care, the, the idea of it. The, uh, you can point to health care and universal education and universities and even modern democracy. So lots of wonderful gifts that the church has brought about in our society, but the church is not essential to the world 
because of its programs. It's not essential to the world because it meets the needs of society or it's the best uh, club going. It's essential because the church is the dwelling place of God on earth. The dwelling place of God on earth is no longer the temple. It's no longer a building, but it's a people. And that's why Paul uses the language of a structure being built up at the end of this passage. God shows the world his character, who he is, through the church and the selfless society of love and unity that the church is, is, is created to be. That's why um, in John 17, uh, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, Jesus is praying for his disciples, but towards the end he says, I, I'm not only praying for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one in them, uh, I in them and you in me, that they, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus desires and prays for unity in the church so that the world would be able to believe that God has sent him and that God loves the world. And so Jesus is praying for the unity of of his people because it's through that unity that we reflect his character. It's through that unity that we we embody a picture of of the Trinity and the character of God. Uh, It's through the church, through this this people that are the dwelling place of God that uh, the world is able to see the gospel at work physically in a concrete way. You know, the church is essential to the world because the gospel proclaims a new life. It proclaims a transformation uh, in, 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 in a life. And so it promises a completely new person and a completely new society of these people that have been changed that, that's based on love and grace and forgiveness and, and unity. And so if that's the message, for that message to be believable, it has to be seen that such people actually exist. Otherwise, it's nothing but an ideal. The world has to see that there are people that have been changed by the power of the gospel. The church is the gospel message in the flesh. And that is most visible in the church when we're living out, um, especially the passage in in Colossians 3, which says... um, that we're to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. 
so must you forgive. And above all these, to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect unity. And later on it says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. When the church lives in such a way that we are kind to one another, we're humble towards one another, we're, we're patient one another, we bear with one another, we forgive one another, the world is able to see the heart of Jesus lived out. And you're probably saying, well, most of the time, that's not what we do. <laughs> most of the time, the church doesn't love it, uh, live up to that quality of life. And um, often it is the case that the church is broken and imperfect because the church is made up of broken and imperfect people that are being transformed. And it's here that we have to remember that Jesus didn't form a people out of the beautiful and the strong and the healthy that didn't need any help, but out of the spiritually ugly and weak and sick. <laughs> Someone once said that the church is less like a country club for the upper spiritual class than it is a hospital for those that know that they're sick and are in the process of being healed. But you know what? Even the brokenness of the church God wants to use to display the gospel. Because in the brokenness of his, uh, of his people that he's in the process of transforming, God shows that he has loved the unlovely. <laughs> that the power is in the gospel and not in human ingenuity or our special skill or strength or our holiness in ourselves, but the power of the gospel is in Jesus. And so, our personal failures uh, amongst the church, the failures of the church, they're meant to be turned into opportunities to glorify God for his mercy and his grace in saving us in the first place. And so, this is the last thing that we need to be aware that the church is still being built. We have to realize that the church is continually being built and we are the stones going into the building. First Peter calls us the, the living stones. Um, and it made me think of the picture of uh, medieval cathedrals. That when uh, uh, the decision was made for a cathedral to be built, that was a process that would often take generations to be completed. Uh, there's uh, um, the, the, the cathedral in um, Barcelona is a good example if you've been there. Um, Sagrada Familia, still not finished. Uh, and, you know, probably will be in construction for many more years. Um, it's a good picture of this process of God continually building his church. And each of us personally, is in that process. And so the question for ourselves is, am I growing? Am I uh, realizing my own gifts, my own place in the body, and how God is shaping me? But then beyond that, the, this, this last verse, 22, says, um, we're being built, but we're being built together. And so 
The next question is, you know, the next step of maturity beyond your own development is looking at the development of the whole body. Are we growing together? Am I intentionally making myself part of the whole body? Am I growing in my love for the body? Like, like that verse in 1 John that we read says. Um, am I doing my part to help build? And you can, I, I'd encourage you to, to go study the, the chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which talks about every person in the church being given gifts by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of building themselves up, but building up the church as a whole. And so our question is, I have these gifts. God's shown me that I have these gifts. Am I using my gifts to build up the church? It's being built in ourselves, it's being built together, and it's being built as a dwelling place for God. And so the question for us beyond that altogether is, can the character of God the heart of God, be seen in the way that we treat one another? Are we living together and bearing each other's burdens? Forgiving one another, being patient with one another, being kind and humble towards one another. Because that is the way that the dwelling place of God is going to be made visible. And lastly, we have to remember Uh, this verse ends, that it's being built by the Spirit. And so we play our part, but we have to remember the church is a spiritual reality. It's not only a physical reality. It's not built by human hands. It's built by the Spirit. And so even though we look around and and visibly there's a lot of weakness, there's a lot of uh, failure, uh, the Spirit is building his church and he has promised that he will complete it. And the, the beautiful picture at the end of the, the, the Bible in Revelation is the church um, being presented as a spotless uh, bride. You know, the, the, and you have the image of the, the bride at the end of the aisle looking absolutely radiant as every bride does, you know, and walking down to be finally united with, with the husband. And so... Um, we have to remember finally that the church, it's a reality. It is here. We are it. <laughs> and it's not an ideal. We're not only the church once we've reached a certain level of professional uh, you know, worship music or uh, a certain level of attendance or a certain level. No, we are the church now. And so, you know, this is really convicting me as, as I was studying this because it's, it, it's telling us Stop complaining about the church's weaknesses. (laughs) Start bearing them. Because it's in bearing them, bearing with these, you know, people that are, are burdensome at times, that is how you are going to reflect God to the world. That is how you are going to be shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. And that's how they are going to be shaped more and more into the image of Jesus. And, it's beautiful. At the end of that chapter in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, it says, when one suffers, everyone suffers. When one part of the body uh, uh, is in good health, all the rest of the body um, enjoys that health as well. And so, 
let's remember <laughs> that uh, we have to love the church because it's God's family. It's Jesus' bride. How can we say that we love Jesus and hate his bride? <laughs> How can you love a person and disparage their family or disparage their bride? It's actually a more serious thing than, than I often realize that we often realize. Um, let's grow in our love for the church um, because it's how we're going to display God's character. And that when we are able to love through imperfections, that is how God is teaching us to love in the way that he loves, unconditionally. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we are aware today of the incredible gift that it is to be called children of God. Father God, you, you have poured out this incredible gift on us that we never could deserve, we could never earn. Lord, and it's not only us as an individual or just alone, Lord, but you're calling us into a new nation, uh, what you called a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and that we are part of this global body of people that is your dwelling place. Lord, help us to realize our place in the church. Help us to grow in our Uh, appreciation of the gift of the church. Help us grow in our love for the people around us that are the church so that together we can better show the world who you are, the power of your gospel, and your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.